0: This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stefan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we speak with 6th District Congressman Derek Kilmer, who joins us for a wide-ranging discussion touching on concerns about the upcoming election, COVID safety and relief, the climate, and what Democrats may be able to achieve in a post-Trump America. This was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, October 27th. So in this final week before the election, we are checking in with members of our Democratic congressional delegation. And we're we're trying to get their thoughts on where we've been over the last four years and to really kind of key in on some possibilities that may lie ahead. And so with that... It is my honor to introduce Congressman Derek Kilmer. He represents the 6th Congressional District. That includes the Olympic Peninsula, most of the Kitsap Peninsula, and most of the city of Tacoma. He is the chair of the New Democrats Caucus. And fun fact, he holds a Ph.D. in comparative social policy from Oxford. Hello, Congressman Kilmer.
1: Hey, good to be with you.
0: I have to ask because I honest, I con- confession, I've never spoken to somebody who's gone to Oxford. Is it Oxonian? Is that how we refer to somebody who goes to Oxonian. Oxford? Oxonian. Okay. You got uh, it. Excellent. Yeah. And, and Cantabrigian for, for someone from Cambridge, right?
1: <laughs> I, I can't speak to that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was hoping maybe you'd be, we could get you to do some of the, the Oxonian accent, but we'll save that for later. Um, there's a lot to get to tonight. I, I would like to start by getting your thoughts on the Senate's confirmation yesterday of Amy Coney Barrett. A lot of people are angry. They're yeah. very concerned yeah. about what this portends uh, for the ACA, for women's rights, possibly for the election. What are your thoughts?
1: Yeah, it was uh, uh, obviously um, terrible news. It was a reminder of the consequences of elections, uh, and you know, certainly motivating to a lot of us to continue to work to get out the vote, not just in our state, but all around uh, the country. It was also, you know, uh, clearly a threat to a whole lot of the values that we hold dear. You 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 have to know that part of the rush. To seat uh, uh, this judge was um, because the U.S. Supreme Court's taking up the Affordable Care Act uh, on their docket uh, in mid-November. And, uh, you know, uh, Amy Coney Barrett's been outspoken in her opposition to the Affordable Care Act. And, you know, what's at stake is health care for Uh, Tens of millions of Americans, protections for 130 million Americans with pre-existing conditions. You know, this is very concerning, not to mention, as you point out, for those of us who care about the environment, for those of us who care about voting rights, civil rights, women's rights, worker rights, all of those are threatened uh, by having Donald Trump get another conservative on the U.S. Supreme Court. So it is very concerning. Uh, Very concerning news.
0: I I have a lot of follow-up questions on everything that you just said, including about the ACA. Um, But I I would like to shift and talk about something that is obviously of immediate concern, and that is the election. Um, And and in particular, election security, because you passed legislation on this. I I will frame the discussion this way, uh, and we'll get into some of the legislation that you passed. But we are a week out from this election right now. How do you assess the threat of interference in our elections right now?
1: Um, Significant. I I don't think it's a a question of if foreign entities are going to try to influence our elections. It's a question of who is trying to influence our elections, what interference campaigns they're running, uh, how vulnerable our system is to those attacks. And, and listen, I think we all agree that foreign interests should not be able to influence American elections, period. You know, I have visited, you mentioned what what the, the confines of Washington's 6th Congressional District are. I have visited every nook and cranny of the region I represent. And I have never, ever heard someone say, you know, we should make it easier for foreign interests to play a role in American elections. You know, in every corner of the region I represent, there is widespread agreement that foreign interests should have no role in our democracy. And in my view, that's not a democratic view. It's it's an American view. And unfortunately, we have not seen that notion embraced by the Trump administration. We have not seen that notion embraced uh, by my Republican colleagues uh, in Congress. The House has, as you mentioned, taken action on bills like the Shield Act to try to prevent foreign interference to try to close some of the loopholes to make it harder for foreign actors to interfere in our elections. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm i happy to get into the specifics of it. But, you know, you you look at the SHIELD Act, you look at the Honest Ads Act, which I'm the lead sponsor of, all of these were designed to try to stop the type of interference that that we are threatened by.
0: The Honest Ads Act was the next thing that I was, in fact, going to ask you about because you were the lead sponsor on that. That seems extraordinarily timely, uh, particularly in the conversations around the role that social media is playing in this election. Tell us what the Honest Ads Act would do.
1: Yeah, and it was included in in the Shield Act. It, it's targeted specifically at trying to keep foreign interference out, specifically when it comes to online political ads. Right now, you know, we're all seeing lots of television ads uh, for political candidates, there is that is the, the the information regarding who is paying for those ads, how much they are paying, uh, who's behind it. That is publicly available information. The public and the press is able to access information about who's buying the ad, how much they're paying. Same thing on the radio. If you're uh, listening to radio, you hear a political ad. There are disclosure requirements, and the public has a right to know who's buying that. But under the law, if an entity buys ads on social media, there are no disclosure requirements under the law. So let's, let's think about why that's a problem. One, it's a problem because more and more political spending is going into that online arena. And second, it's a problem because we know, particularly those of you who read the Mueller report, know that foreign actors have sought to influence electoral outcomes through uh, internet advertising. And so we know that. And so the Honest Ads Act does something very simple. It would require digital ads on the largest online platforms to meet the same disclaimer and reporting obligations that are required of TV and radio. Um, you know, this is really uh, an effort to just shine a bright light on that dark, murky world of online political expenditure. Um, it's a bipartisan bill uh, in the House, it's a bipartisan bill in the Senate. Unfortunately, uh, we've seen very little interest uh, by Mitch McConnell in doing anything. That cleans up American elections and uh, and seeks to prevent foreign interference.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's quite an understatement. And uh, ideally, if the Democrats sweep, uh, we will see that uh, along with the Shield Act uh, make its way through Congress and and, and be codified into law. Um, yeah. I, I want to ask you about the election itself because I think people are very concerned about what Trump might do, uh, not accepting the results if he loses, uh, trying to shut down the counting of mail-in ballots, trying to have the election uh, decided in court. I'm wondering, what are you and House Democrats thinking about right now and and possibly preparing uh, with regard to these scenarios?
1: Yeah, there's, as you can imagine, there's been a lot of contingency planning that's been happening. you know, but you know, frankly, the most important thing that we have been working to do is, um, you know, one of the ways we avert these sorts of problems is win by a lot. You know, you've got candidates, you've got Democrats all over the country, not just political candidates, but activists, including members of Indivisible in our state and all over the country, who've said, "Let's run up the score," because we've seen time and time again that this president will try to wiggle out. Uh, the facts and, and discount the truth. And so our job really is to make the facts indisputable and send a clear message. And that message has to be that the American people are fed up with Donald Trump and ready to put real leadership in the form of Joe, Joe Biden into the White House. Um, you know, Obviously, uh, I was troubled by, I think all of us were troubled by um, Donald Trump calling into question whether or not we would have a peaceful transition of power. You know, my concern about that, again, is not just as a Democrat, like, that is a, that is foundational to American democracy. The peaceful transition of power is a bedrock principle of this republic. And that President Trump would not only decline to commit to a peaceful transition of power, but also undermine faith in the ability of Americans to to safely vote by mail is, in my view, just entirely unacceptable and intolerable. And so, Uh, Already, you saw the House pass a resolution reaffirming the House's uh, commitment to a peaceful transfer of power. And, you know, we're going to uh, hold our Republican colleagues uh, to that. Um, You you also see, see, as I mentioned, both from a legal standpoint uh, and even potentially a legislative standpoint, uh, doing as much contingency planning as we can. Uh, to make sure that, that uh, we don't see a problem like that occur. You know, and listen, we got, as we, you and I have this discussion, we've got seven days uh, and 48 minutes to get out the vote and make sure our voices are heard. And I, obviously that applies to the pres- presidential race, race but it, it applies up and down the ballot. We need to keep the United States House in democratic, democratic hands, we gotta flip the Senate. We need to elect democratic majorities at every level level, all the way down to our state and local governments and and honestly that's what I've been spending a lot of time uh, and I know many of those who are watching uh, are spending a lot of time uh, just working to clean up this mess and you know this this is uh, it, that is going to require leaders who share our values, and that's why this election matters so much.
0: Absolutely, I could not agree more. Put a pin in that, if you will, because I, I do want to ask you about some specific races that you're getting behind. Uh, but in terms of the grassroots response, um, I believe you've been made aware of a project called Protect the Results. This is a grassroots coalition led by Indivisible that is dedicated to making sure that every vote is counted in this election. Uh, there are a number of groups in your district that have signed on to this. I wonder what your Thoughts are about this?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's very troubling that we have a president who's unwilling to commit to accepting the results of this election. And so on that front, I think we have to be realistic and acknowledge the possibility that we could see some concerning actions taken by Donald Trump trying to undermine the legitimacy of this election. So I, I confess I don't know a lot about protect the, protect the Results, but I do know that some organizations that I partner with, including Indivisible, including Organizations like N Citizens United and the Sierra Club and Planned Parenthood, organizations that I support and I'm proud that support me, um, are are part of this effort. And at the end of the day, we need to be diligent in ensuring that the legitimate results of this election are honored and upheld. You and I were talking, you know, before uh, before we went live on this. You know, this has been part of the discussion around the the COVID response, due to, as as well, making sure that there is. Uh, uh, funding available to election departments around the country to protect the integrity of the election, to make sure that there would be no excuse vote by mail. Um, You know, and you saw tremendous pushback against that uh, by our Republican counterparts. You saw efforts that we undertook to try to protect the postal service so that, um, you know, when when someone votes by mail that their uh, ballot is processed and delivered in a timely manner. Um, that's really important as well. Uh, and so we have been working on, on that front as well. But beyond all that, and I, I don't think I'm sharing anything that uh, is um, telling tales out of school, you know, part of the contingency planning that we're doing is, you know, to to, to make sure we're positioned to shut down any sort of shenanigans that they try to pull. You know, the Speaker is taking steps to ensure that House Democrats not only have a majority in the House, but that Democrats control a majority of the state delegations. And the reason for that is because if the House of Representatives have, have to decide a disputed election, each state gets one vote for its de- from its delegation. And that means if a state has six Republicans and four Democrats, there's only one vote and the Democrats are, are outvoted. Um. So we've got some work to do on that front and that is shaping some of our engagement as well from a political standpoint and trying to flip seats.
0: I'm glad to hear that that is uh, being considered uh, seriously right now, because I think that is something that is is very concerning to a lot of people who are watching uh, from from the bleachers, uh, as it were. You mentioned the COVID response. I would love to, to talk with you just a little bit about that, because it would appear that we're heading into a third spike. In fact, you just held a town hall with a professor of infectious, uh, infectious diseases at UW Yeah. What do you feel we should be prepared for? And what are you recommending that that people here in Washington do to stay safe?
1: Yeah. Well, part of this is following the guidance of public health professionals. You know, um, wash your hands, watch your distance uh, and wear a mask. You know, those are three things that we can all do to stay safe and try to stop the spread of this virus. And I I hope everybody who's watching and listening are, are doing that. You know, over the past few weeks, we've seen a sharp increase nationwide in COVID cases. Last Friday, Johns Hopkins reported uh, over 83,000 new cases, over 900 deaths, which um, was the highest number of new cases in a single day since this pandemic started. We also, last week, uh, passed the uh, mark of over 100,000 people in our state having tested positive. And it's important to acknowledge that, you know, these aren't just numbers. You know, these are human beings attached to this. You know, I've talked to far too many people. In fact, I talked to someone earlier this afternoon who thankfully has recovered uh, uh, from COVID. Um, But he said it really just kicked his butt. And, you know, uh, and he said, I'm still just struggling uh, physically, um, even though it's been several weeks now. And so we've got to stop the spread of this. And it's been one of the things you mentioned, you know, trying to get to a COVID relief deal. You know, one of the things that's held that up is you know, Democrats have been have been insistent that we have a science based strategic approach to crushing this virus, and that is the antithesis of what we've seen by the Trump administration. We also need to have a response that actually help people helps people that are really hurting right now, and um, that's something that we're insisting on as well.
0: Well, yeah, and I, I wanted to ask about that specifically because just sure. tonight, uh, now that Mitch McConnell has gotten uh, his justice through. Uh, Supreme Court Justice through. He has gaveled uh, the Senate closed until uh, after the election. I wonder we, we know that the Democrats passed the Second Heroes Act. Uh, Trump and the Senate Republicans, Republicans uh, rejected it. There have been no negotiations, no bill. It doesn't look good now. Do you foresee any sort of relief package happening? Uh, obviously, not before the election, but in the interregnum period between the election and the uh, and and the inauguration, the reason why I ask is because there's going to be enormous harm to individuals that doesn't need to happen. I'm getting a little yeah. emotional, pardon me, but i it's it's just it's it's enormously politically cynical what is happening here uh, and, and and it angers me and it angers a lot of people. and I wonder what your it thoughts are on too. this.
1: It angers me too. I have to tell you, we made a decision. I made a decision a few months ago. That if someone reached out to our office having lost their job or lost their business because of this pandemic, I'm not sending them a form letter, I'm calling them and I'm spending, you know, hours on the phone with people uh, each week, um, where the rug has really been pulled out from under them. And I think, you know, part of the reason I'm a Democrat is I believe that the response from the federal government shouldn't be well, tough, tough for you, but rather we got your back. And you know, I talked to a woman in Port Angeles uh, a couple weeks back and she said, I've worked my entire life. And she said, I lost my job in March. And she said, I just cannot find a job. And she said, I, I used to organize the food drive uh, for my employer. And she said, for the first time in my life, I went to the food bank. And she said, I just I couldn't feed my kids. I didn't know what to do. And you know, And thankfully, the package that we as Democrats passed, provide assistance, unemployment assistance, another round of the rebate checks, um, uh, housing assistance so someone doesn't lose their uh, housing for something that's not their fault, and nutrition assistance. And what you've seen, part of what is stymied getting to an agreement is this is a fundamental issue of values. There is a difference in values from the House uh, and uh, the Senate and this administration. Just to, just to I, I wanna give you some, and I'm, I apologize if I'm gonna run a little long on this answer, but I want, I want the people who are watching and listening to get a sense of, of really what's at stake here. In the HEROES Act, because of the extraordinary increase that we've seen in poverty, and in people um, having uh, food insecurity, the HEROES Act included $69 billion for nutrition assistance, and for utility assistance, so people don't see their power shut off. $69 billion, which experts suggested was what is needed to meet the need across our country. In contrast, Mitch McConnell and Senate Republicans in their proposal included $250,000 for nutrition assistance. $250,000 would not cover the nutrition needs of Pierce County, where I live, let alone the entire country. And it's a very, very cynical, cynical approach. And so if people are listening to that, and and angry, they should be, because that is not consistent with our values. Even today, you may have seen the news that the Trump administration in the middle of this pandemic is challenging in court, uh, and continuing their effort to try to cut uh, low-income Americans off of food stamps. Um, it's just not who we are. You know, I, I talked to a small business owner in Tacoma earlier this month, and he said, I spent 30 years building my business. He said, my dream was to pass this on to my kids. And he said, just can't make it. And he said, I, I, I'm trying to hold on, I just can't do it. And, you know, when Mitch McConnell, uh, you know, we passed the original HEROES Act in May, and his response at that time was, well, let's just pause well, that guy's bills didn't pause. And, you know, this virus didn't pause as we've seen thousands and thousands more Americans get sick and, and, and many die. And so I have a sense of urgency about this. You know, this is, this is not some political game to be won. You know, there are human beings that are really hurting right now. And the assistance that we passed out of the, uh, out of the house included assistance for small businesses and Uh, assistance for families and and, uh, uh, to help weather the storm. And most importantly, included a science-based approach to trying to crush this virus and to protect people's lives so that we have the testing and the contact tracing and the treatment that's needed uh, to actually defeat this virus. And that has been the stalemate. There have been some other specific issues and I'll I'll mention just one or two others and I'm sorry to run so long on this. But you heard the president during the uh, during the presidential debate say, well, Democrats are insisting on bailing out blue states. That is not true. What Democrats have been insistent on is that a COVID relief package should include assistance to state, local, and tribal governments. So why is that? Well, one, you have an approach from this administration that has largely said, Dealing with this virus is the job of state and local governments, not of the federal government. That is, you've seen them largely decentralize the approach. So our state and local governments have borne a significant uh, amount of cost to do that. On top of that, uh, you know, because of the uh, uh, medically induced coma that our economy was put in by this pandemic, um, the revenues coming into our state, local and tribal governments is far less Uh, than was projected. I I did a roundtable with a group of community college leaders uh, this uh, or or last week. You know, they've been asked to prepare a budget that expects 15 to 20 percent cuts. 15 to 20 percent cuts. And if you think about what, what happens if that comes to pass, that means a whole bunch of people lose their jobs. Their ability, that college's ability to provide training to people who've lost their jobs is eroded. And so, It is bad news across the board to the point that the chairman of the Fed, who's not exactly a a progressive activist, said in the absence of, of further federal intervention to support state, local, and tribal governments, this will prolong this recession or even see us fall into a depression. So that's why you've seen Democrats advocate for that. I will tell you, if you look at the list of the 15 states with the most significant revenue shortfalls, eight of the 15 are red states. But I'll tell you, the other thing is, who cares? You know, this is not about blue and red states. This is about, we are the United States of America. And our response should be to make sure that people who are hurting right now have the resources that they need. So that is what we've been advocating for as House Democrats. I am very, you know, I'm a genetically hopeful person and I am hopeful that we will see. Listen, I hoped that we would see a deal back in May when the House passed the HEROES Act. I pushed for us to pass the second HEROES Act because I think we need to see help get to the people uh, in my community, in my district, they need it. Um, and I had hoped that we would see something before the election, that seems less likely now. However, I do think the incentives are aligned because um, you know, one, uh, if, if the election goes as we hope it will, uh, uh, you know, Democrats will likely wanna see, you know, one, we have a sense of urgency about getting help to people who need it, and two, it, there will be value in trying to take this off what will already be a very full plate of uh, incoming President Biden. So uh, I am hopeful, you know, and and, and frankly, uh, it, this may be the chance for the Republicans to have any sort of role uh, in the process of passing a relief deal. Um, uh, because I think their voice, if all goes according to plan, will be much less uh, following, uh, following the new year and the inauguration.
0: And that would be ideal. And I just want to say thank you for taking uh, such time and care and unpacking all of that. I know that there are a lot of moving parts with this. And one thing that I think we know the fundamental differences between Democrats and Republicans is that Democrats uh, use power to Help people, uh, and Republicans yeah. use power uh, well for its own sake, and I, that's a bit reductive. But uh, that's that's where I land on that. Uh, I want to talk next about the climate uh, because you sit on the the Climate Solutions Caucus, and you know, this is important to the sixth uh, for a number of different reasons. There's a lot of aquaculture there. Um, you are home yeah. to America's only uh, North America's only rainforest. If the Democrats run the table, what are some of the first actions that you would like to see done on climate?
1: Yeah. Well, one, I, I I would hope that immediately we re- re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, you know, and, and and listen, you are right. I represent a district that's already seeing the impacts of climate change. Uh, you know, there are four coastal tribes in the district I represent that as you and I are talking, are in the process of trying to move to higher ground uh, because of persistent flooding uh, from rising sea levels and more s- severe storms, not to mention the the threat of tsunami. Um, I have in the district I represent literally thousands of families whose livelihoods are tied to fisheries and to shellfish growing. They're seeing the impacts of changing ocean chemistry. Um, you know, the large, you know, we saw the wildfires which have been just ravaging our state. You know, and the largest employer in the district I represent is the U.S. Navy that looks at that, that has called uh, climate change a threat mul- a threat multiplier. Um, not to mention the fact that most naval bases are on the water and so they're seeing resiliency challenges. So I think there's a lot that I'd like to see happen. You know, one, you know, and I was talking to a constituent the other day who said, gosh, this president hasn't done anything on climate change, to which I responded, I only wish that were true because frankly, he's done a whole bunch of damage. Um, And so some of that is we have to to unwind some of that damage. So one, re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement, the House passed a bill that I was a co-sponsor of, um, H.R. 9, uh, the, the um, Climate Action Now Act to re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, we um, need to uh, put back into place the clean power standards that, the, uh, that President Trump uh, um, uh, repealed. Um, obviously, we have to stop this uh, zealous approach to trying to expand off- offshore drilling and putting our, our public lands up for sale to the highest bidder. I would encourage those who are watching and those who are listening to check out there's something called the Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. This was a new committee that was established in this Congress that was um, that has put out a comprehensive plan uh, for uh, addressing climate change. And it would, among other things, you know, put our country on a path to net zero carbon pollution pollution you know, and it does in a way that gl- grows our economy and put, puts Americans back to work. Um, it does it in a way that protects the health of our families and of our communities that are dealing with the impacts of this and importantly addresses some of the legacy of uh, environmental injustice that has really harmed America's low-income communities and communities of color. And so there are a whole, that, that, is, there, that is an entire roadmap Uh, that I would encourage people to check out. I will mention it includes five of the bills that I'm the lead sponsor of, uh, one dealing with ocean acidification, uh, one dealing with tribal uh, coastal resiliency and trying to help some of those coastal tribes. There's some other things that I'd like to see happen. I'm a sponsor of a bill called the 100% Clean Energy Economy Act, which which, uh, establishes a goal of achieving 100% clean energy uh, by 2050 at the latest. Um, I'm also a sponsor of a bill Uh, that would put a price on carbon and return the net revenue back to the American people. I think at some point, you have to have some monetary incentives to reduce carbon emissions. Um, I also think candidly that it's time for the United States to think about this the way some other countries have thought about it. And that is not just addressing a threat, but potentially taking advantage of an opportunity. You know, we can create new industries and new jobs where we can combat climate change and poverty at the same time. And that that is you know really where I think we have an extraordinary opportunity. Other countries have figured out that when we invest in innovations to try to address the climate crisis, that it can lead to jobs, it can lead to new industries, I um, mean, it can put people to work.
0: And you know, you, you you talk about investments. You will likely be the most senior Democrat on the Interior and Environment Subcommittee for Appropriations, and where this is kind of a larger discussion. But where if you keep pressure points where you feel we should direct our spending for the greatest impact on the climate?
1: Well, one of the one of the areas that, um, again, I'd encourage people to take a look at, we passed a bill called the Moving Forward Act. It's H.R. 2. And it includes a whole bunch of provisions related to infrastructure investment. But it was with, with kind of a new lens on infrastructure so that we're not just, you know, when we're um, making these infrastructure investments, that we're not just Uh, investing in a road or a bridge, but we're investing in our climate future, and that we're investing in not just building that project, but building the middle class, uh, and and building the next generation of workers. That's a bill that included about almost $500 billion to reimagine our transportation infrastructure. And among other things, it wasn't just about fixing roads and bridges, but it also focused on putting our country on a path towards zero emissions from the transportation sector you know cutting carbon pollution investing in public transit so you do see that
0: transition in, away from fossil fuels into green into green uh, uh, energy sources
1: i think infrastructure investment toward that end to cut carbon pollution um you know and to build out fueling infrastructure for low and zero emission vehicles you know that is that is a winner that is a job creator and a winner for our uh, environment That bill also included about, I I, want to say, somewhere around $70 billion to transform our electric grid to accommodate more renewable energy and to expand renewable energy to to not just strengthen our existing infrastructure, but to expand our ability to to see progress on things like energy efficiency and the use of renewables. Those, in my view, are smart investments that could put people to work now and lay the foundation for our economic growth and for our environmental future over the long haul.
0: I would like to shift gears entirely and talk about uh, your position uh, on appropriations is also you're on the subcommittee on defense. And I, I would love to just get a couple of thoughts about where we sit on the world stage right now. Um, and, and and ultimately how you assess the damage that the Trump administration has done to our standing uh, uh on the international stage
1: yeah um I, I I think uh obviously it's eroded our the Trump administration has eroded our international standing uh extraordinarily um you know the the i, I think about um I heard Uh, Seahawks coach Pete Carroll in an interview. uh, And he was asked what he looks for uh, when he's scouting uh, players for the team, what ability does he look for? And he said, the most important ability is reliability. And frankly, I think that's true in in terms of our relationship with our foreign allies. And frankly, um, under Donald Trump, the United States has proven to be an unreliable partner. You know, he has cozied up uh, to dictatorships, and he has Uh, kind of cast aside our alliances, um, and that's very problematic. You know, he he has sort of dissed our NATO allies. Uh, He's, it appears, has a stronger relationship with North Korea than with South Korea, which is uh, uh, somewhat mind-boggling. You know, obviously, uh, uh, the persistent trade war that he has uh, approached has not only been damaging it's such a different approach, right, um, in that uh, it's actually exacerbated our trade deficit um, and and hurt a bunch of people in the United States, as we've seen uh, inca- increasing tariffs on American goods that we're trying to sell abroad. Uh, and uh, on top of that, you know, rather than forming alliances with those who share, uh, share our values, um, we seem to be... Uh, 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 dissing our uh, uh, alliances. So I think what we've seen out of this for years is is very damaging, very damaging. And my hope is that we'll see a new president come in uh, who will try to press the reset button. I I
0: think that's all of our hope. I I would just ask you, do, do you it is is it your sense that our allies see Trump as an aberration or do you think the damage runs deeper?
1: It's been interesting, I, you know, I, I, I've done, uh, because I serve on the Defense uh, Subcommittee on Appropriations, I've done some travel to uh, visit, um, you know, they're definitely not vacations. I went to Iraq and uh, in, in Jordan earlier this year um, right before the world shut down from the pandemic. And uh, we get asked that a lot. You know, we get asked by other countries is what we're seeing from Trump an aberration, or is this or is this a commonly held view? Should we stop relying on the United States uh, as a partner? You know, I, I went to uh, Japan and uh, to South Korea. Um, you know, and we we got asked uh, about you know can can we depend on you? You know, there was a real question about, gosh, you know, we I visited South Korea as you know you saw things escalating with the North Koreans. And meanwhile, uh, Donald Trump is trying to start a trade war with the South Koreans and they're trying to figure out what, what does this mean? Um, so I think our allies are very concerned that, uh, that this is a sign of more to come. I think, you know, thankfully in Joe Biden, uh, they have we have a, a leader who has strong relationships around the world uh, that is, is someone that I think our uh, allies uh, recognize that, that can be a dependable partner. And that's gonna be important, both in terms of our efforts to try to make peace around the world and, and, and hopefully not uh, engage in, in, uh, in so many wars all over the world. That's important as we try to stabilize uh, our trade relationships and hopefully have trade relationships where, you know, and listen, trade's gonna happen. And the question is, does it happen with rules that are set by China with no rules or rules where the United States is at the table trying to protect the environment, to protect workers, to protect intellectual property? And thankfully, I think we've got a sense of where Joe Biden will be on those issues.
0: Related to defense, I want to give you a moment to talk about veterans, because the Sixth is home to the second highest population of vets represented by a Democrat. You've done a lot to help our vets, uh, including helping with post-service career pathways. I'd just love to give you a moment to just kind of talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, you bet. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that, uh, you know, our, our district is home to more military veterans than I think any other district held by a Democrat in Congress. That is a strength for our community, that we have men and women who serve this country and who choose to continue to make this region their home. Um, you know, these are people with extraordinary skills, extraordinary patriotism. And for me, um, you know, that, that lends itself to a few just kind of core values. You know, one, I think if you fought for your country, you shouldn't have to fight for a job when you come home. And so a lot of the work that I've done has been focused on trying to help those career pathways to make sure if you had experience in the military, that that experience can be translated into the civilian workforce. That we're easing, easing that pathway. It means if you served our country, that you should get the health care and benefits that you've earned. And, you know, and so for example, uh, uh, we worked, uh, I worked to, to build a new um, community based outpatient clinic in Kitsap County because the clinic that we had in Bremerton was completely inadequate in terms of meeting the needs of our region's veterans. And so, um, you know, we worked and it took a lot of work and, um, you know, the VA, I think, was probably um, uh, inclined to put a restraining order out against me at some point because we were pushing them so hard to get this thing built. But you know, to me, that's about, you know, sort of um, making good on our promise to those who served. You know, some of the coolest work that my office does is casework where, you know, we've had dozens and dozens of military veterans who've been denied benefits or denied recognition. We had a guy who reached out to our office. He said, you know, I fought in the Vietnam War. He said, I got shot up on my mission. He said, I never got my Purple Heart. He said, you know, it would really help me heal some of the wounds that folks can't see if I could just get that Purple Heart. And we looked into it. And part of the issue was his mission was in Laos. And according to United States government. We were never in Laos and during the Vietnam War and and we worked with that guy and we got his mission declassified and probably the coolest day I've had in this job was getting to pin a purple heart to that guy's chest. You know, and so that's some of the work that we do too. I, I will mention the other value that I have is, you know, in the land of the free and the home of the brave, every brave service member should have a home and it shouldn't be under a freeway overpass. And so, you know, we've got a lot of work and we've been doing work uh, through m- my role in the Appropriations Committee to try to exp- expand access to, to housing, uh, to housing benefits. Um, actually, one of your uh, terrific, uh, one of the terrific leaders in Indivisible uh, down in the Gig-, Gig Harbor area, Lynn, is one of the leaders on uh, helping with uh, veterans who are looking for for homes and looking for housing opportunity. Uh, we've been working with her and-, and her organization on some policy ideas as well, um, but it's- it is just It's just fundamental. And we've seen far too much homelessness among the veterans population. So we're working hard to address that too.
0: If you will indulge, uh, we had a question that will circle us back to the election a little bit. We had a couple of questions about the Lincoln Project. Um, this seems to have captured a lot of people's imaginations, including mine, I will confess. Um, and uh, I think they are one—this uh, this comes from Alex and Squim, and he asks, uh, are you in touch with the Lincoln Project? Are they working behind the scenes to shut down Republican-inspired violence and help the transition of power? Any thoughts on that?
1: I haven't been in touch uh, with the Lincoln Project. I've, I've, uh, I've certainly watched a bunch of their ads, including one I saw today on Lindsey Graham, which um, I thought was uh, very impactful. Um, I don't know if it was impactful with South Carolina voters, but um, I, I, I can tell you as a guy sitting in Washington state, I appreciated their perspective. Um, and this may be maybe not directly responsive to the question, but I do think to, to the point of the question If Donald Trump tries to steal this election, to some degree, we are going to have to call on patriotic Republicans to say no, Um, something that, frankly, unfortunately, they were not willing to do during the impeachment process, with very, very few exceptions. Um, But at some point, uh, we're going to need to see folks put uh, their country ahead of their party.
0: There was a follow-up question about that, uh, about keeping federal agents... Uh, troops ultimately out of Washington in the wake of the election. Any thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, there's a resolution and a, uh, and legislation that I've uh, co-sponsored that in essence says that uh, uh, any sort of federal troop engagement um, shouldn't be allowed unless a, a, a governor um, requests their presence explicitly.
0: I'm going to shift over and ask you about something that's very near and dear to my heart, and uh, because I'm an arts kid, I, I was a fine arts major. Yeah. Um, you sit on the Congressional Arts Caucus, and we know that the arts have taken a terrible beating during this pandemic. Where do you feel the arts fit in the recovery discussion?
1: It's a great question, and uh, I'm 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 an arts kid too. I, I I'm a recovering string bass player, oh, and nice. uh, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, I'm married to a woman who runs a museum, and I've got a cello playing child. And I'm, uh, you're in a, it, you man. Know, yeah, yeah, and a, and, a, and a future Broadway star, sixth grader, I think. But um <laughs> so, uh you know, listen, I, I uh, unfortunately, our arts organizations have been really hammered by this pandemic, like a whole bunch of other people have been. You know, this uh economic disruption has made it very, very difficult. And I think it's important to, to, a, a, you know, approach the issue, not unlike you asked the question was with, with, which is just with an acknowledgement of the important role that the arts and humanities play in our communities. They are job generators. Um, they enrich our communities. They provide educational opportunities for kids. They bring in tourism. If you look at the district I represent, you know, Tacoma is a fundamentally yeah. different community because of the investment in arts organizations. Um, Bremerton, uh, you know, the, the, the Admiral Theater, what an amazing success story! Go to Bainbridge Island, and their new art museum is just off the charts cool. And you know, unfortunately, all of them uh, have faced a real hit as a consequence of this pandemic. And so, in my view, the federal response has to acknowledge the important part of the reason you have to start by recognizing the importance of these organizations is the federal response has to acknowledge that as well. You saw. To some degree in the CARES Act, some funding, uh, some additional funding for the National Endowment for the Arts, some funding for the National Endowment for the Humanities, some funding for the Institute for Museum and Library Services, just out of a recognition that they've been hit harder. Um, The HEROES Act also includes uh, some funding for that purpose. You've also seen things like the Paycheck Protection Program that has expanded its eligibility to support nonprofit organizations, including some of these vital cultural organizations as well. So that is a priority for me. Um, it, you know, it's interesting and I'll, I'll be be—I'll uh, be honest with you. When we passed the CARES Act, I was um, uh, on uh, the radio in Port Angeles and had a, a question basically sort of saying, well, you know, why aren't we spending funds that are just for, for for covid you know why why would why would money go to the national endowment for for the arts to which i responded well so how do you feel about you know the the theater organizations in the community how do you feel about the museums you know if you look at as we came out of the great depression there was a recognition by the roosevelt administration that the arts were an important avenue to our economic recovery, and I think that needs to be part of the process going forward as well. Uh, that's a priority for me, even if I didn't have all of these arts and humanities people um, under my own roof. Uh, but it is, um, it is, it, it is just, it is fundamental to hu- hu- who our communities are, um, to the vibrancy of our communities, and it would be such a shame if. We, you know, God willing, we, you know, we get a vaccine, we get through this pandemic, and then we've wiped out uh generation's worth, worth of cultural institutions. Um, I don't want to see that happen, and the federal response can't let that happen.
0: Well, I'm very heartened to hear you say that, and I'm sure you've seen in the chat bar uh, a lot of uh, nodding heads uh, there. We talked about-
1: I I confess, I can't see the chat bar, but I'll trust you. You'll
0: you'll take my word for it. You're getting a lot of agreements, a lot of snaps on that. Um, Let's talk, uh, we were going to circle back to this uh, earlier, about your support at the state level um, on elections here in Washington. There are a lot of legislative swing districts in the sixth. Who are some of the candidates that you're supporting there this year?
1: Yeah. Well, and I I want to shout out Indivisible for the work that they're doing in a a lot of important races. So, um, you know, I'll just take you on a quick tour of the 6th Congressional District. If you start down in Grays Harbor County, uh, we've got Dean Taco and Brian Blake, two terrific rural uh, Democrats, you know, who are really important voices in the Democratic Caucus, you know, who speak on behalf of rural Washingtonians who, you know, Brian worked in the timber industry, both Um, know the ag industry very well, both know the challenges facing rural Washington, you know, and unfortunately, both were underwater a bit uh, in the primary. And so we're working really hard to support those candidates. I'm a resident of the 26th district. Uh, Carrie Hesch and Joy Stanford are two just crackerjack candidates to really- strong, strong candidates who I think can um, win one week from today. And for those who are are watching or, 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 or listening, I encourage you, you know, check out their campaigns. Uh, we are working really hard to get out the vote on their behalf. We've been doing phone banks for them. We've been doing fundraising for them. We've been waving signs for them. I let them take over my social media pages, um, you know, and, and I'm really, this the 26th district, that's the seat that I held uh, in the state legislature that's a seat, you know, that's a district that was held entirely by Democrats and then was held entirely by Republicans. Thankfully, we elected Emily Randall uh, two years ago, just a terrific state senator. I'd like to give her some company and Carrie Hesch and Joy Stanford are just two terrific candidates. Carrie works at the Women's Correctional Facility as a leader in the Teamsters. Joy is, uh, works in, in, in housing. She's been a substitute teacher. She's been in our classrooms. She'd just be a terrific legislator. The 28th district is uh, just across the Narrows Bridge. Um, Nobles. Uh, is a terrific candidate for yes. the state senate. Um, the CEO of the Urban League, uh, just a, a, an amazing leader. And as we talk about economic opportunity, as we talk about trying to overcome racial injustice as a state, I cannot think of a better leader to see elected to the state senate, senate than Twana Nobles. Um, in those House seats, we got to make sure we hang on to Mari Levitt. That is a really tough, uh, tough. Uh, district. Um, and, and Dan Ronosky, um, uh is uh, the candidate for the other position. Um, we're working to help each of those three candidates. The 35th district is sort of Mason County uh, and part of Kitsap. And it actually goes all the way down into uh, Thurston County, just outside of my congressional district. We've got two great candidates there, Colton Myers, um, who is just a great young uh, dynamic leader. Uh, Darcy Huffman um, is just such a great candidate. She's worked in uh, the Lutheran church in her community, you know, and has seen the importance of having a, a social safety net. Um, and, and, you know, I think what she has seen from her experience uh, in her church, you know, really with the notion of advocating for social justice drove her to run uh, for the legislature. Every one of those districts that I just mentioned is a coin flip district. It is truly a coin flip district. And so, um, you know, I I, I can't say enough about the great work that Indivisible has done certainly in our neck of the woods. But for those who are listening, who are thinking, gosh, you know, I'm tired of making calls into Pennsylvania Maybe I can help uh, here in the state of Washington. Those are some terrific candidates, and I, you know, and listen, I. That's not to say anything negative about the people who are in safer districts. We've got great legislators and a great candidate in the 23rd. We've got great legislators in the 24th, and in the 29th as well. Um, but but thankfully they're they're pretty safe. Um, we're we're trying to make sure we're helping in these districts where our help uh, you know a little bit of help could make a big difference.
0: Yeah, I mean we we hear Tina Pulidowski talk about uh, Democrats running competitive races in in these types of, of tight districts and how important that is. And I will just give a plug for us that uh, the town hall series has done uh, town halls with each and every candidate that you mentioned: Judge jo- Joy Stanford, Kerry Hash, Twana Nobles, Brian Blake, Dean Taco, uh, Darcy Huffman, and Colton Myers. We will. We'll prov- be providing those in the show notes for people to check all of those out. Um, That's other awesome,
1: thank you. For det- Can I say one other thing on that front? Of course, I mean, that really matters, and I just want to say thank you for that. That is a big deal because, listen, like we all know, I mean, we keep saying 2020 is the biggest election year of our lifetimes, but listen, not just in terms of, of the White House and Congress, which don't get me wrong, is very important, but up and down the ballot. And you know, you've seen, and God, I've seen. You know, majorities matter. You know, I think about my first six years in Congress, I was in the minority. You know, I cannot tell you how many moments of silence we had following mass shootings in this country when Republicans uh, were in charge. I can tell you how many moments of action we had. We had zero, zero. You know, um, you and I just talked about the climate crisis. You know, my first term in Congress, we were in the minority, I was on the science committee. We literally had in the science committee, a hearing on the myth of climate change in the science committee, you know, and thankfully that dynamic has changed when, when Democrats got the majority and you've seen the value of democratic majorities in Olympia, you know, and so this matters, this really, really matters. And so I just want to, I want to thank you, you know, not just for having folks on, on, uh, on your show. Um, but for spreading the word, you know, and, and, and you know, these legislative uh, races really matter. Look, we, we got a chance to flip the Pierce County Council also. Um, the council hasn't been blue th- since 2004. Um, it has made it very difficult to make the investments that we need in behavioral health care. I think it is a travesty that the largest provider of mental health services in Pierce County is the county jail. And so having a Pierce County Council that is um, actually wants to do something about that, I think is really, uh, really important. And so there are so many opportunities to make a difference and, and, and that's why um, my team and I got a great team, um, we, we have all been making phone calls, um, trying to help with fundraising, You know, doing everything we can. We, I think we've held something like 16 joint events with some of these, these frontline candidates and, and uh, done these social media takeovers. We're doing everything we can. I would mention if you want um you can check out um i'm at Derek Kilmer on on uh on Twitter Um, we've got a campaign Facebook page and I mentioned that not to tout my own uh, site but because we've highlighted all of these candidates and we let them take over our page for a day and you can see some of the messages that they're sending out and you know to the extent that folks are willing to amplify that that's really important, too.
0: Thank you for doing that work as well. I'll, I'll toss the compliment right back at you. And also, thank you for laying out the stakes of, of what is, is so important in this year's election here at the state level in Washington. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap up, I would love to get your thoughts looking forward on two post-election scenarios, possible post-election scenarios. I always like to end on a positive note, uh, if possible. Yeah. So we'll save the best scenario for last. So let's okay. say the Democrats win the Senate and keep the House but lose the White House. How do you see the role of the consolidated legislature, then uh, the, the, the Senate and the House together uh, playing defense against Trump?
1: Well, I've had that experience to some degree, you know, unfortunately not with the Senate in our hands, but we've had to play defense, uh, you know, and, and listen, you know, some of it is in areas that we've talked about. Uh, I serve on the Appropriations Committee in every year that Donald Trump has been in office. He's proposed a budget that would zero out all funding, uh, for Puget Sound recovery, you know, and thankfully we've been able to block that and, uh, and, uh, actually increased uh, funding by double digits. And so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I, I don't love the scenario that you've played. You've, you know, do, you do I, nor do I, but you know, we, you know, I look at my job as two parts, you know, one is, uh, to stand my ground when there is an attack on our values. Um, It is an attack on our values when we have a president who's trying to take healthcare away from people. It is an attack on our values when we have a president that's separating immigrant children from their parents. Um, You know, and and there's no compromise to be had in those scenarios. There may be scenarios in terms of, you know, trying to recover our economy. Things like infrastructure investment, you've seen Democrats and Republicans in the House and in the Senate and the President say that they want to do something on infrastructure. You know, and I think so. There, there may be some opportunity there. Um, If, if
0: I may, the question I think I'm driving at is how effective, because you're you're talking about things that may be able to get done. Because, as you've said, you uh, are a genetically helpful person, (laughs) which is wonderful. I, I think I'm wondering more along the lines of how effective do you think Democrats could be in shutting down some of Trump's worst impulses.
1: Um, I think we will be about as effective as we've been over the last couple of years when Democrats have been in the House, which has meant it's a mixed bag, mm. right? There have been times we've been able to stop things when he proposed things that are very damaging, including things like zeroing out Puget Sound funding. Um, there's been some things that he's done that we have not been able to stop. I will tell you, one of the things that you did see change when Democrats took the majority is suddenly you saw oversight over the executive branch, which you had not seen under Republican control. And that's really, really important, too, because it enables us to shine a bright light on some of the bad things that this administration is trying to do. It makes it far easier to stop bad things when you know about them.
0: So let's get to the good one. That is the trifecta. Dems run the table. So this is more of a philosophical question, if, if I may. How do you believe we begin to undo the damage That's been done to our our, our discourse, to our institutions, to our norms, to to the very nature of truth. How do we start to take that on?
1: Yeah, Um, it's really important. And, you know, I I think about all of the things that I care about, Um, you know, the most probably the most common question I get is, God, why would you want to be in Congress right now when it's such a mess and you've got two kids? And my response is always the same. It's because it's a mess and I got two kids and I care about what kind of country they grow up in. You know, I, I want them to grow up in a country where you don't go broke when you get sick, um, where people have health care. You know, I, I want them to grow up in a world where they can get a good education and their teachers are well compensated. I want them to grow up uh, where they can get a good job, where they're respected as working people. Um, I want them to grow up in a country where discrimination is a thing of the past, uh, where regardless of your race or religion or your gender or your orientation, or your ability or disability, you are valued. Um, I want them to grow up in a country where we protect our environment because our kids are only as safe as the air they breathe and the water they drink and the earth that we pass on to them. And all of those things, all of them have moved backward under this president, every one of those things. And so, you know, we do have um, some damage to unwind and some of that is can happen um, through executive action. Some of that's gonna take uh, legislation. And some of it, to your point, is not an issue of, of policy. It's an issue of norms, of trying to restore civility. Um, dear God, it'd be nice to you know be able to, to look at social media and not have a, a president that's um, saying things that if my kid said in middle school that they would be suspended for. Um, you know, as I think about, um, some of the legislation that I think, that I hope will move. I think, you know, a pretty good roadmap exists. You know, when you're in, every bill gets a number, and when you're in the majority, the first nine bills, H.R. 1 through 9, are set aside for the majority party. And if you look at H.R. 1 through 9, that the House Democrats passed, they're actually a pretty good articulation of our values. You know, H.R. 1 is the For the People Act. It's a big democracy reform bill focused on reducing the role of money in politics, because, I think as Democrats, we believe money isn't speech, corporations aren't people, um, and that we want to clean up our politics. And God knows, you know, we're going to need to do almost like a a version of the Watergate reforms, of ethics reforms and other reforms coming on the heels of this presidency. So I think that is important. HR2 was a big infrastructure bill not just to invest in roads and bridges, but to make sure that we're investing in the middle class and supporting good union jobs. You know, anyone who's driven on I-5 lately knows, you know, at this point, the speed limit signs are only there for nostalgic purposes. And so infrastructure investment is something that we should move forward with, but in a way that actually also um, restores our, our climate future, uh, you and know, our workforce. H.R. 3 was a bill to lower the cost of prescription drugs you know, to allow Medicare to negotiate directly for lower drug prices. That's a really big deal. H.R. 4 was a new Voting Rights Act to reverse the damage done by Shelby County versus Holder and remove those barriers to the ballot box that all of us are worried about as we go through this election. Um, H.R. 5 is the Equality Act um, that does something that we've already done here in the state of Washington and that is to have non-discrimination protections for the LGBTQ community. So the matter, in matters of housing or employment, people aren't discriminated against based on who they are or who they love. H.R. 6 is the DREAM Act. So the young people who have made this country their home, who are Americans in every way uh, except on paper, aren't living in fear of deportation. And that's some of the damage that this president has done as well. And and frankly, we need to look more broadly at immigration reform um, to undo some of that damage as well. Uh, H.R. 7 was the Paycheck Fairness Act which is a bill that embraces a simple ethic, which is equal pay for equal work. As Democrats, we believe um, that people should get paid the same for equal work. And yet, in our country, an African-American woman is paid 66 cents on the dollar as compared to a white man, and that is wrong. And uh, H.R. 8 would require universal background checks for the purchase of a weapon, and H.R. 9 is climate action now to re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement and to take bold action to address the climate crisis. As I lay those priorities act out, that's a pretty good articulation of if we run the table, heck, that could be a pretty decent first 100 days. I would add in uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, which also um, passed out of the House. Every one of those bills that I just mentioned passed out of the House um, with the sport of, I think almost without exception of every Democrat. And uh, I think would actually um, make great progress in unwinding some of the damage of this president
0: well i think it would be a hell of a great start to a yeah, a, yeah. A, a brand new a, a 2021 and a, and a new post trump era congressman derek Kilmer, I, I can't thank you enough for for taking the time for your candor um and just for your your insight this has been incredibly informative and, and and delightful thank you sir
1: you bet great to be with you and if um folks got questions that they didn't get answered feel free to visit my website i'm just derek
0: my thanks again to Congressman Derek Kilmer. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julian Gievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fye Sears. Special thanks to Lori Colwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.